Amen. 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 Well, with that, beloved, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, how wonderful it is, how mind-blowing it is that you have decided that we would know what prophets desire to know and angels long to look into. That we would know your son and his salvation by grace through faith. And that we would have this eternal life which you promised to all who trust in you. We thank you, O Lord, that this eternal life, this great salvation, is cause for us to rejoice even when we suffer. We thank you, Lord, that our faith in Christ is obtaining um, the outcome, its, its outcome, which is eternal life, the salvation of our souls. We pray that this morning there would be more who would have that testimony that through faith in Jesus, they have received the salvation of their souls. And we pray that this morning your church, in the remembrance of that salvation, would be strengthened and built up, uh, would be made ready, O oh Lord, for holy lives in a hostile world. We pray this morning that you would come by your spirit, illumine our minds. Oh Lord, illumine your word, give us understanding, sanctify us and conform us to Christ. That you would come this morning and give us the word we need, oh Lord, to persevere in faith, hope and love. We offer ourselves to you this morning and pray that you would have your way with us. In Jesus' name. From November 7, 1962 to February 11, 1990, Nelson Mandela was imprisoned in Robben Island. Mr. Mandela was 44 years old when he went off to prison. He was the father of five young children when first incarcerated. While he was incarcerated, his mother died and he was unable to attend the funeral. When his son was killed in a car accident, he was not allowed to leave the prison. He was unable to send or receive birthday messages and greetings with his young daughter. They didn't allow him to wear shades when they were forced to work in the limestone quarries. The bright South African sun reflecting off of the limestone permanently damaged his eyes. This is but a short list of the suffering, not even the worst of it. And the question becomes, how did he survive it all? How did he get through it? How did he survive being separated and at points estranged from his wife? How did he survive the news of a repressive apartheid regime seemingly unchanging and inflexible and unending for nearly three decades. How do you survive it? Hope. He clung to hope even when things looked most hopeless. Where did that hope come from? Well, when you read his biography and read his letters, he said he owed a great debt to American psychologist and religious leader Norman Vincent Peale and the power of positive thinking. He said he didn't really buy into Mr. Peale's metaphysical program, but his comments about hope 
seemed really helpful, writing to his wife, Winnie Mandela, encouraging her. He wrote these famous words, remember that hope is a powerful weapon even when all else is lost. True words. But what are we to make of the nature of the kind of hope that Mr. Mandela was talking about? A kind of positive thinking that we work up despite how bad things are. I trust some of us have tried that kind of hope. What do we make of the kind of hope which amounts to a kind of self-brainwashing? Of convincing ourselves to be positive despite the circumstances that we endure? Is that Christian hope? Or is Christian hope made of sturdier stuff? Is Christian hope made of something more permanent, more lasting, uh, more muscular, able to hold and carry our souls through the trials that we will no doubt face? It is. But Christian hope, lasting hope, grows not out of our own thoughts, but out of the promises of God, the sure, unshakable promises of a God who does not lie and cannot fail. Our verse this morning is in some ways a short meditation on hope. The Apostle Peter is writing to these Christians who are scattered throughout Asia, who are suffering for their faith, many of whom are in prison like a Mandela, but for the gospel, for their faith many of whom persecuted and mistreated, and he is now sort of going to exhort them in hope. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, our text for this morning. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we look at our text this morning. We pray that God would indeed give us grace to set our hopes there fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we think about this text, we want to do it in, in two parts, two simple points. Number one, the exhortation to get ready. We'll see that in the first half of the verse. And number two, the exhortation to hope fully. See that in the second part of the verse. Get ready, hope fully. Look again at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whenever you see the word therefore, you're supposed to ask what? What's it there for? Therefore is a powerful word. Therefore, is, is, a, is a kind of word that looks simultaneously into a mirror and a window. It looks backwards at what has already been understood or received, and it looks forward at the things that are to come. It's a little bit like being a, a good driver of a car. A good driver of a car doesn't just look out the front windshield, but they are regularly checking their mirrors to see what's behind them, what's beside them, what's around them. There it is with this word, therefore. It helps us to look both backwards and forward through the rearview mirror and through the windshield. And as, it, as we look into the mirror, like all mirrors, we see a reflection. That's what we 
did this morning when we got dressed, right? We looked into the mirror to see what we looked like, to, to see ourselves. Was our hair right? Was there leftovers in our teeth? Uh, did we look into the mirror? Were our clothes matching? And, and we make an assessment, don't we? We don't often say it out loud, but when we look in the mirror, we are, we are quietly making assessments of ourselves. I look okay. I look presentable. I, I don't like my nose. I don't like this mole. My hair's not right. I should wear a hat. Whatever the case is, the, the mirrors reflect back to us ourselves and our assessments of ourselves. And that's what Peter's word, therefore, is doing here in verse 13. It's an invitation to these persecuted, suffering Christians to look at themselves in a spiritual mirror and to sort of gain for themselves a spiritual assessment, not based upon how they're feeling or how they're doing in the moment, but based upon what God has said to them and about them in verses 1 to 12. We might summarize it in at least six things. You could pull out more, but they should look in the mirror and see elect exiles. And here a kind of affirmation that goes something like this, I am chosen by God even though I'm homeless in the world. I'm God's special elect chosen person, even though I'm an exile, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a homeless person, I'm, I'm forced as a migrant in this world until I get to heaven. They should look back in this mirror into this therefore and remember that they are God's children. What does verse 3 said? That according to his great mercy, God has caused them to be born again to a living hope. They should see themselves in the reflection of God's mirror as twice-born persons, once naturally, a second time spiritually, and therefore adopted children, which, which makes sense when you look at verses 3 to 5. They should look in this mirror and understand that they are inheritors with an inheritance. They have been born again not only to a living hope, but to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for them. And they too are kept, you who are being guarded by God's power through faith. Look in this mirror and see themselves as kept people. And see themselves as worshipers, as rejoicers, even in suffering. So the affirmation goes something like this. I am glad to be saved, even if God refines my faith in the furnace of trials, because it will be for his glory forever. And they should see them, themselves as people of faith, of precious faith. They should say to themselves, as they look in the mirror, I love and believe in Jesus without seeing him and, and obtaining the salvation of my soul through faith. And even see themselves as confidants of God. Verses 10 to 12. That they have been brought into a mystery. They know something that prophets wanted to know and that angels desire to look into. They should affirm themselves and say, I, I know more than angels and prophets through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And we too, when we look into the mirror of God's word, when we look into this spiritual uh, looking glass, we should, we should see ourselves this way. This is what we should preach to ourselves. Now, my problem, I don't know about you, but my problem is that when I look in the mirror, all I see is the beady. You know, if I, if I see anything, it's usually some kind of flaw. My weight, my skin tags. See, my vanity and my natural eyesight blind me to who I really am in Jesus. 
It's a problem with just natural sight. We need to see what God sees through Christ Jesus. And to do that, we must look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word. What, what we see in the word, we should maybe write on our physical mirrors or post on a postcard. We should definitely carry it to heart because this is who we are. This is the person and identity that God gives us in Jesus Christ. After knowing Jesus himself, the most fundamental important thing we need to know is who we are in Jesus Christ. I know you hear that all the time, that our identity is in Christ. Let's show of hands, how many, for how many of us is that really a vague notion? I kind of know that's true, but I don't know what that means. I know all of you don't have your hands up. You should. But this this is kind of what it means. I think this is the the deep identity work. Looking at a passage like First Peter chapter one through verses one through twelve, or almost any chapter in the Bible, as it describes us, it is sort of getting those truths deeper and deeper into our own heart, into our own understanding of ourselves, and beginning then to sort of have that shape how we see not only ourselves, but how we see and engage the world. I'm not just the beauty of the African-American. I'm Thabiti the elect exile. I'm not just Thabiti the, the son of Harvey and Francis. I'm God's child. Born again because of his great mercy. I'm not just broke Thabiti. I'm Thabiti with an inheritance that's undefiled and kept for me. I'm, I'm not just Thabiti who just kind of you know, my, my way of sometimes dealing with suffering is white-knuckling like a lot of you. I just, you know, buckle down, press through. That's something to be said about resilience, but I'm to be to rejoice in because I have a salvation that's greater than all of my trials. And the miracle, I wake up every morning a believer with faith in the Lord Jesus, whom I have not seen, whom I do not now see, and in whom yet I believe, I love him, and I rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It's evidence that faith, that God has made me alive through Christ his son. It's who I am. And so are you, if you are Christ. And so many things more if you are Christ. And so you can be if you're not yet Christ. If you've not yet put your faith in him, it's not too late to turn from a life of death and sin and to really live through a life of faith in Christ. He died for you on Calvary's cross. That's where your sins were punished. And he was raised again from the grave three days later. That's where your righteousness was guaranteed. And he's coming again to gather his church. As we shall see, that's where your hope should be. All that Jesus is and all that Jesus does may be yours this morning. By simple confession of your sin to God and of putting your trust in Jesus to be your Savior. If you'd like to know more about that, this is why we exist as a church. Talk to anyone in here who looks like they might be a Christian and even some who don't look like it. Because praise God, you read a list like this, our lives are better 
than what we've been through. We are more than what we've been through. So we look in this mirror and we look back and we see verses 1 to 12 and we see who we are in Christ. But we, we look also in verse 13 and that word therefore and it causes us to look forward as well. To look out the windshield, to look out the, the, the window of faith. We look away from ourselves and we look out onto the world. And as a result, we are transformed by this verse in at least two ways there. Notice what the text says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Those are the two things that are happening because of this therefore. The two things that are growing out of this therefore, out of all of that truth that's been stated in verses 1 to 12. Number one, we are preparing our minds for action as we meditate on this great salvation and our identity in Christ. That phrase could be translated, gird up the loins of your mind. I like that better. In the Middle East, when a, a person would gird up their loins, they would gather up the sort of loose fabric of their clothing and, and tuck it into their belt so that they could run or work or fight or whatever the case may be. In the Exodus, the Israelites were told to keep their loins girded so that they could move whenever God commanded them to, to move. They would always be ready. As Pastor Tim said, they would, uh, wouldn't have to get ready because they stayed ready. We, we don't use that language, gird up your loins, anymore. But we still do it. Imagine a woman coming up these stairs over here wearing a long dress and heels. What would she do to navigate the stairs? She'd reach down and pull up the hem of her dress, wouldn't she? So she wouldn't step on the dress and get tangled up. We gird up our loins. Or think back to the Montgomery brawl. What do, what do brothers do when they get ready to throw hands? Get a little stat, and they do this. This little move right there. You see a brother do that right there? He's girding up his loins for action. Y'all know. He's getting ready. So now Peter is saying, we should do this not with our clothing. We should do this with our minds. That we should gird up the loins of our minds. That we should prepare our minds for action. We've got some loose thoughts, like long clothing, hanging around our minds. And, and we're going to trip over it, get tangled in it. We're going to fall unless we tighten things up, unless we pull those stray thoughts back in. And as 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says, makes them obedient to Christ, takes our thoughts and make them captive and obedient to Christ. We're going to live like the old man unless, as Romans 12 says, we are renewed in our minds. Right? So we, we've got thoughts that are just sort of hanging out there that, that are not necessarily really well governed by the salvation that we have and the people that God has made us to be. And, and so the deep work here, the preparation work here, is to gather that up. Bring it in beneath the identity that we have in Christ and the salvation that he has purchased for us. The next phrase is a lot like it. It's continuing that mental transformation that reflecting on our salvation accomplishes. He says we should also be sober-minded. Now, soberness is the opposite of drunkenness. A drunk person 
lose his control of their minds. Their, their thinking slows and gets sloppy and might even get be, become a bit sort of uh, hallucination-like. Before long, a drunk person mind gets so dull that they enter into a kind of stupor, right? They're hardly even thinking at all. And the Bible everywhere defines drunkenness as a, as a sin and, and, and associates drunkenness with, with foolishness and, and often with God's judgment. The drunk is usually seeking to escape life because, notice, they have no hope. Their drunkenness, though, only makes them less and less hopeful. Tom Schreiner, New Testament scholar, commenting on this verse says this, says, Peter was not merely saying that be believers should refrain from drunkenness. There is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God, that is anesthetized by the attractions of this world. When people are lulled into such drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. Drunkenness brings our eyes down from Christ and his coming and his glory to sort of earthly, temporal, short-term pleasures and basically, if not checked, makes us dull. To the spiritual realities that are in Christ. And so instead, the Christian is always to be sober-minded, which could be translated self-controlled. To be sober-minded is to be realistic about the world and in control of our thoughts. And as soberness increases, so does awareness and clear-headedness. And that is precisely what we need as holy people in a hostile world clear-headedness, seeing the world correctly, self-control, the gathered mind yielded to Christ. And in, in, in 1 Peter alone, this sober-mindedness is connected with other things. So, for example, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, uh, sober-mindedness benefits us by benefiting our prayer life. Peter says, there the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. You realize that an undisciplined mind is likely to be a non-praying mind? It's likely to give its attention to everything but the time is at hand. Let me press into God. But Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, that sober-mindedness also benefits us in our spiritual warfare. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Let me tell you, you walk in these streets this day with a devil looking to devour. You don't need to be staggering drunk in your mind. We need to see and be sober and be realistic and understand the consequences of this spiritual warfare that we are engaged in. We have a real enemy. He is defeated, but he is real. And he's not the only enemy. We also are fighting against the world and even our own flesh. So we cannot be seduced by these things. 
And our seduction is increased when we are drunk. But our victory is increased when we are sober. And so we want to be sober-minded. It is critical, a critical quality for people living in a hostile world in the end of the age. A critical part of our spiritual warfare. So what, so what about you and me this morning? Are we getting ready this way? Are we preparing our minds for action? Are we developing sober-mindedness? Well, let me encourage us with, with three quick applications here. Number one, remember that our identity should be reflected in our thinking. That who we are in Christ should be reflected in the thoughts that we have about ourselves and the world and our part in it. That's just a, a basic sort of thing to use to, to sort of test our thoughts with. We're thinking about, you know, dating this person, or we're thinking about making this purchase, or we're thinking about saying these words to a particular person. Real quick, step back, ask yourself, now, is what I'm thinking reflecting who I am in Christ? Might be reflecting who you are in your flesh, but the issue is we want it to reflect who we are in Christ. That's number one. We just want to get in the habit of, of thinking about, does my identity express itself in how I'm thinking? Number two, as we've already said, we want to be people who refuse to let our thoughts run wild. We should take every thought captive. And this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, uh, it's a little long, but, but bear with me, because he's going to be making the point here that what we really need to do is be preaching to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves. He says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Now, if you hadn't realized that, you might just want to sit with that this afternoon before the Lord. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. They do come right in the morning, don't they? You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Then Lloyd-Jones says this, The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, in on this great note, defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance who is also the health of my countenance and my God. That's the mental work we have to do. Like all day, every day. We got to turn and say, self, be quiet. And then preach to ourselves. 
the truth of God's word. We've got to defy ourselves. We've got to take ourselves in hand. We've got to speak to ourselves and stop so much listening to ourselves. But the uncontrolled thoughts will almost never drive down the straight street. It will swerve and wobble and find ditches and trees. It will crash, but the uncontrolled mind will almost never drive us straight to our destination. Here's the third thing then. Spend some time the rest of this year or on into next year, whatever, whatever your time allows, spend some time reading things on the life of the Christian mind. I remember the first time I met a Christian who could defend their faith. I was robbed because most of the Christians I had met seemed to me to simply be regurgitating what their pastor said, but not really thinking through the implications. And if you asked them a good question, they would start stuttering and hemming and hawing. Right? It was just sort of obvious to me at the time as a person who wasn't a believer and who was really antagonistic to the faith. It's like, I can't take y'all serious because y'all don't think. We don't want to be Christians like that. We don't have to be egghead Christians who just are all head knowledge and, and no warmth, no love, no piety, and no action in the world. The text says here, prepare yourself for action, right? We don't need to be egghead Christians, but we do need to know what we believe. And we do need to learn how to think in distinctively Christian ways. So a few books to recommend to you. Uh, some of them a little bit older, some of them a little bit more recent. Um, Oz Guinness, I'm recommending this in part because I just love the title, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. That's his, that's his summation of the problem in much of the world in the Christian church, that we have fit bodies, some of us, not me, we have fit bodies because we're in the gym all the time, but we have fat minds because we don't work them out in a Christian way. Right? That's one. Carl F. H. Henry, some generation, a generation ago, wrote the scandal of the evangelical mind, still appropriate in this day. Picking up on that theme a little bit, Mark Knoll, historian, the scandal of the evangelical conscience. Great book. James Sire has written a little book called Habits of the Mind. And John Stott, Your Mind Matters. Any of those would be excellent books to just sort of sit with and crawl through in order to develop and to grow in a distinctively Christian way of thinking. So we want to be ready. We want to have minds that are sober. Number two, we want to hope fully. With a reminder of who we are in Christ and our minds transformed, we are ready for the main action in this sentence. It's there in the second part there where Peter writes, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's the main verb. That's the main action. Set your hope right, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If we might put this in our own words, we might say this, confidently hope on future grace when Jesus comes. Confidently trust that when Jesus is revealed the last day, you're going to see the sort of the manifestation and the perfection 
of God's grace, of God's kindness in your salvation. We've already tasted his grace. We've already had grace teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions while we live self sober and self-controlled and upright lives in this evil age. But we're going, that's a foretaste. That's a commercial. That's a deposit. There is yet more grace for us to receive from our God. Peter says, set your hope on that. Now what's the nature of this hope? We need to understand hope if we're going to understand this verse if we're going to avoid the kinds of mistakes of a Mr. Mandela. The first thing we must say is that hope is only possible with a certain mindset. Only the girded and sober mind can properly exercise Christian hope. The, the loose, wandering, undisciplined, and uncontrolled mind cannot rest confidently with hope in the salvation that brings that Christ brings. The second thing we need to say, it's important to know that this hope is not achieved by our positive thinking. It's not a mind game. It's not a new age thing. The hope Peter speaks of is best understood as confidence in God and confidence in his promises. I appreciate the way Edmund Clowning comments on this. He says, we cannot first improve our skill in hoping and then direct our more hopeful attitude toward God. Hope moves the other way. It is our response to God's word. We look to God, hear his word of promise, see his salvation in Christ, and fix our hope in him. You see what he's saying? But oftentimes we think of hope as this thing that, that we've got to sort of work up. And once we get it kind of worked up to a certain level, then we can turn it and put it in God. Cloudy is saying, no, actually, biblically, it works the other way. Go ahead and get your eyes up on God. Get your eyes up on his character. He's good. He's faithful. He never fails. He does not lie. He's present with me. He is, he is my help. Get your eyes up on God and get your eyes on God's promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Get your eyes up on all that God has promised and on God's character and then let that fall back into the form of hope. You see, the first way depends upon us and the things we do in our own head. The second way helps us escape really the strongest prison that is, the prison of our own mind and our own thinking. And it helps us to look up away from ourselves to find something objective, something permanent, something true, something stable, which is God and what God has promised and his coming kingdom. And it allows us then to sort of say, let me get out of my own head and get myself fixed on this one who is never changing. That's where my hope is. My hope is in him and what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. And he never fails. He never fails. So hope is faith expressing itself in certainty or trust in God and in God's future work in our lives. That's why hope feels like rest. In the midst of turmoil, in the midst of distress, in the midst of suffering and anguish and uncertainty, this hope feels like rest. It just lays itself on God's back. And in that is the release that we so often need. 
Well, third thing about hope. We have our hope, again, set on the living God. First Timothy 4.10 says, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, this hope, then, propels our vision forward, not by a day, not by a week, not by a month, not by a year or decades. It propels our vision forward to the end when Christ comes. This is why Paul would say in Titus 2, verse 13, we are waiting for our blessed what? And what is that blessed hope? The glorious appearing of, the, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hope helps us to look down the arc of time to the appearing of Jesus at the end of time. And the coming of Christ for the consummation of his kingdom. As you read the New Testament, see how often the New Testament writers bind those things together. The hope and the coming of Jesus. Peter has done it already a few times in this letter so far, right? So when he talks about a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time at the end of verse 5, or when he talks about praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, or even in verse 9 when he talks about obtaining the outcome of your soul, of your faith, the salvation of your souls, the New Testament writers, the apostles, the early Christians, so unlike us today, who are so captured by what's happening now, we're always looking out to the end. This was the habit that fostered hope. Yes, I'm suffering. Yes, I'm persecuted. Yes, the whole Asian world seems to have no place for Christians. Yes, the, the Western world in Rome is burning Christians at the stake. Yes, we are, we are pressed and crushed on every side. But you know what? I see past that. I see someone coming full of glory, full of power, full of majesty. I see a new day that never ends where there's no darkness, no death, no dying, no disease, no persecution. There's no brokenness. There's no abuse. There's no homelessness. I see a day when the Son of God will come again and will wrap this thing up. That's where my hope is beyond the reach of all my enemies, safe in the hand and the face of the Son of God. That's hope for us. And that hope is ours. Remember what's said in verse 3. God has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope. <laughs> God's so good, he not only calls us to hope in him, but gives us hope. He gives us that living hope. He, he, he gives us a new birth that we would have that hope. He, he's, he's working the beginning and the end. He's working through the middle, right? He's, he's, he's like, you know, I got this thing rigged, right? If you're mine, then you're mine because I gave you a whole new birth, a whole new life. You've been regenerated, and I have, in that regeneration, fixed you with this hope. You didn't have hope. You were without God and without hope in the world, but God now has come to us and given us hope. So I've given you this hope in your new birth, and now I'm calling you to exercise that hope because I'm coming again. I'm coming again to gather you as my bride. It's the nature of Christian hope, not just positive thinking, but fixing 
our eyes on Jesus and waiting for his coming. Now, I want you to understand one other thing, and we'll, we'll close. I want you to understand the necessity of hope. Not just its nature, but its necessity. It's not, it's not a, well, an optional thing if you kind of feel like hoping or want to hope or, you know, you're in a good season and hope seems doable and then, you know, you can take it or leave it. It's not, it's not that kind of thing. Hope is necessary. If, if a person does not have hope in Jesus, you have no hope of the grace that Jesus brings, the salvation that he brings. You see how Peter writes this so wonderfully in verse 13? He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on what? The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a marvelous, that's a marvelous thing to say. Jesus is still serving us. Not just in his incarnation, and not just in his heavenly session where he's sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for us, but even in his second coming. He is bringing to us grace. Now, if if you don't have this hope in Jesus, you you aren't a recipient of this grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 puts it this way. Referring to us when we are not Christians, before any of us become Christians, he says that we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the sobering description of God's word of people who don't yet believe in Jesus. You are without hope and without God in the world. That's a desperate condition. And the the end point of that condition is not grace, but wrath. It's not God's kindness, but God's judgment for, for rejecting him and rebelling against him Throughout the span of our life, if we die in our sins, we die without hope and without grace. And beloved, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I want you to know that we say these kinds of things not because we are trying to be judgmental or we think ourselves better. That was true of us, too. And we say these kinds of things to make it clear how seriously you need Jesus, how seriously you need a Savior, just as we need a Savior. And and, and to make it clear that the only way that we are to be saved is by God's grace, by his kindness, which he expresses in the sacrifice and the resurrection of his son, but which you only get if you put your faith in him. God is gracious. There is more grace in God's little finger than there is sin in the whole world. He has grace enough for you for the sins you have committed, for the sins that have been committed against you, for the ways in which you and I are, are broken and weak and, and undone, God answers with grace. Receive this grace. Don't reject it. Today is the day of salvation. 
Today is the day to come to him. Today is the day to confess, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. Yes, Lord, I have rebelled against you. Yes, Lord, actually, I don't have hope beyond all these little things. I put my hope in people around me or other things that fail me. I, I actually need a real hope. I need hope in you. Confess that to God and ask him to give you that hope, to give you that grace, to give you faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a prayer he always answers. If you call to the Lord for mercy, he is great in mercy, and he will give it. So if you're here this morning, we pray that you would, if you get nothing else out of our time together this morning, that you would, you would get this, that there is a merciful God who loves you and has proven his mercy and his love in the sacrifice of his son for our sins. He crucified him on the cross. He raised him from the grave three days later, and everyone who has faith in him has a life that shall never end, a life that shall always be marked by mercy and grace and love and hope. That can be your life if you put your faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Beloved, it's, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, pray for those who are thinking about what we just said, that God would give them faith. And if you're thinking about that, let us know. Because we like nothing more than to encourage you and to help you find your way. And Christian, let us be those people who understand that life without Christ is an endless hope, or with Christ is an endless hope, without him a hopeless end. And let us be those who hope in the Lord and look for his coming. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for Jesus and what he's done for us. For he has redeemed our lives from the pit. and He has set us in your kingdom as priests and more than that, as adopted children. We thank you that he is our Lord to whom we give gladly our obedience and our worship. And we thank you for his coming. And we pray, Father, hurry that day, hasten the day when our faith shall be made sight, when we shall behold our Lord at his revelation to the world, and we shall feast with him in his glory. Until then, Lord, I pray that you would you'd help us to hope like Christians. Help us to hope in the midst of serious illnesses, Hope in the midst of financial insecurity. Help us to hope and grieve the loss of loved ones. Help us to hope as we suffer broken relationships and broken promises. Help us to hope when we are struggling to see you and to know your presence. Help us to hope when we're fighting a sin that besets us, tries to hold us. To us. Grant us grace to gird up the loins of our minds. Grant us grace to be sober-minded that we might hope in you. Come quickly, O oh Lord, and gather your church, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.